you know, your Bible with me to Psalm 45. And this is the second part of what we began last week. And in Psalm 45, it is the most unique psalm in the entire collection of psalms. And there's the particular reason that it is so unique is because it speaks of a royal wedding, of a wedding that took place between a real Jewish king. It is believed that Solomon is probably that king. And this wedding took place between Solomon and some prince, perhaps the prince of Egypt or some other major national power that was around Israel in those days. And so this psalm describes a literal royal wedding while it also is a messianic psalm, which means that it's speaking about something related to the life of Christ. And as we look at the royal wedding that is being portrayed to us, we can say that figuratively or metaphorically, the psalmist is describing the eventual wedding that will take place between Jesus and his bride, the church. Because that is true, this psalm is incredibly unique, aside from the different words and phrases that are unlike anything else in the collection of psalms. But in order for us to better understand this psalm, it helps, it helps us, excuse me, in order to better understand the psalm, it helps if we understand something about the ancient wedding culture and customs. So in order for us to understand the second part of the psalm, this requires a bit of a lengthy review so that we can be caught up with what we've already talked about. And for those of you that weren't here, you won't be completely in the dark as we look at what this psalm is really about. So in an ancient wedding ceremony custom, the groom would be at his home with all of his attendants and they would be getting ready, they would be dressing, And then in a great ceremonial procession, they would go from the groom's home to the place where the bride lived, and the bride was with her attendants, and they all were getting dressed, and they were waiting with great expectancy on the arrival of the the groom and of his wedding party. And once they arrived, there would be another grand processional back to the groom's home, where the beginning of the wedding feast would take place, and that wedding feast could last for up to two weeks. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's giving us glimpses of what this procession from the groom's home to the bride, the gathering there, and then the procession from the bride's home back to the groom's home. So after this very short introduction of verse 1, the writer begins to address the groom and begins to describe him. The description of the king is so glowing that one commentator has said, either we have here a piece of poetical exaggeration far beyond the limits of poetic license, or someone greater than Solomon is here. And that's exactly what this is. The one that is greater than Solomon, the most splendid of all of Israel's kings, is none other than the Messiah himself. And so this is who the psalmist is really describing. So it is in this sense that we know the psalmist is describing something beyond what he sees with his physical eyes because he is describing 
the Messiah. If you remember back in verse 1, he talks about the great assignment that he has, and it gives the phrase that is used here gives the idea that he is going to speak with some kind of special spiritual inspiration. And so it is in this sense that he is very likely describing the Messiah in a way that he doesn't understand at the time. But he describes the Messiah, one who will one day be joined to his bride, the church, and in the great marriage supper of the Lamb, we have this picture image of the King coming for His bride. We would read in Revelation 19, verses 7-9. through 9. Again, that didn't make it in there. I don't know why. <laughs> I edit this and check and it somehow disappears. Revelation 9, 7, excuse me, 19, 7-9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the, give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And so this is what is recorded in Revelation. This is what I believe, and most commentators believe the psalmist is alluding to here in Psalm 45. It is an illusion of the great marriage feast that will come when Jesus comes for His church. So in describing the King, the main body of the psalm begins with the praise of the divine King and the Bridegroom, who is none other than Jesus Himself. He says in verse 2 that He is above all others. You are fairer than the sons of man. His name is above every name because it is the only name by which mankind can be saved. We cannot be saved by any other name than that of Jesus. Not by denominationalism, not by moralism, not by our citizenship or our ancestry. We are only going to be saved by the name of Jesus and that makes Him more fair than any other individual. The psalmist goes on to describe some of these attributes of the king. Number one, he is gracious in his speech. The second part of verse two, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. His gracious speech is found not only in his interactions with the people during his public ministry, but the speech of Jesus is gracious because it extends to mankind the opportunity to be saved through His work on the cross. We read in John 6.68, Simon Peter answered and said to Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what we learn from this is that this immensely powerful divine being, the one who is the God of the universe, the divine entity, if you will, the spiritual being, the spiritual force, He has made Himself known to the world He has created, through Jesus the Son, and He speaks words of eternal life, which means you and I can know this God who has created this world that we live in. The psalmist goes on to describe that He is clothed in righteousness. Verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. So the king's clothing here including the sword, is described as being filled with splendor and majesty. And it speaks not only of the external beauty of the clothing, but it speaks of the very righteousness of the king. The sword, which seems like a strange part of one's wedding garment, represents the word of God as described to us 
in the New Testament. The sword is important because it represents that the king is seeking God's ideals. The great king, who is clothed in splendor, possesses a sword, and the sword is how he is going to pursue God's ideals in this world. Verse 4, And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. So this king, the Messiah, who is seeking God's ideals, is not seeking his own purposes. He's not seeking his own praise or his own glory. He seeks after the Father's ideals, which are his own, and they are described to us as truth, meekness, and righteousness. In the majestic clothing of the King of Kings, he rides victoriously, accomplishing God's purposes in the world by yielding the sword, the Word of God, which speaks truth, it exhibits meekness, and it is thoroughly righteous in everything that he says. By the way, the words that Jesus speaks are the holy standard by which mankind will be judged. So these purposes are contained within the Word of God, or the sword, with which the king is clothed. This picture image is very similar to what we read about in Revelation 19, about the future coming of this king. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he sat, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So this picture image of this wedding between this king, which is metaphorically speaking of the king of kings, and all that is entailed with that is also a picture of what is going to happen when Jesus returns and he wages war and he judges righteously based upon his word. Number four, he is described that his, his victory is certain. Verse five says... Your arrows are sharp, the people fall under you, your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. There is no one or no thing that can stop the king from being victorious. Now again, this sounds like strange pronouncements to make at a king's wedding, but it speaks of his power. It speaks of his ability to accomplish what the ruler of the universe that has set before him. And here it says that his victory is certain. Now think about this. This cannot be true about any earthly Israeli king or any other earthly king because no earthly king's rule is certain. Israel as a nation would eventually be conquered And for hundreds of years they lived under the subservient rule of the nations around them. And even in Jesus' day, they were ruled by the hated Romans. And so what the psalmist is writing is of the metaphorical, eternal, victorious rule of the Messiah who is going to come. God's kingdom cannot be stopped, and it will not be stopped, and it will be victorious against all of God's enemies. How is this victory of the Messiah going to be won? It is won at the cross. 
He's not going to come on a literal white horse. He's not going to come with tanks or chariots or any other kind of empowerment. He is simply going to come. He's going to judge based upon His Word. And that is going to be righteous. It's going to be filled with meekness. And it is going to bring about certain victory. We also learn, number five, that His rule is certain. We read this in verse six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this verse makes very clear the inspired words of the psalmist is describing something other than an earthly king who is not eternal, but the rule of Christ over God's kingdom is. Because this king that he describes has God's anointing. Verse 7, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Just as the bridegroom is anointed with oil on the day of his wedding, God has anointed the spiritual king with oil, indicating that the fullness of God's blessing is upon this one that he has anointed. Number seven, the king is now prepared. He's heard all that the psalmist is going to say. He is ready to proceed to capture and to bring back to his palace the bride so that they can consummate and complete the wedding. Verse 8, All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and casea out of ivory places. Stringed instruments have made you glad. So the psalmist describes the physical readiness of the groom for the wedding with his clothing smelling of the best fragrances available. He also describes the opulent palace where this wedding ceremony is going to take place. It says in verse 9, King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So the bride will be adorned in the best gold. The bride will be accompanied by women of the royal family as she takes her position at the king's right hand. So the king has been wonderfully described. He makes his way from his home to the home of the bride. And so now in our psalm, we turn our attention to the bride who is eagerly awaiting the arrival of the groom who is on his way for her. We're going to read verses 10 through the conclusion all the way down in verse 17. Follow along with me if you will. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. So now as the psalmist turns his attention in addressing the bride, the groom is on his way to the bride's home with his attendants. The bride has been waiting with joyful expectancy, but probably with a touch of anxiety because she is going to leave her home the place of her family, the place of her ancestral 
connection. So the psalmist turns to the bride in a fatherly manner, and he speaks to her in this reassuring manner that her future is very bright. Now we must remember that the psalmist is speaking not only to a literal bride, but he is also speaking to a metaphorical bride, which is you and I, which is the universal church of Christ, the one that will be married to the great bridegroom, none other than Jesus himself. So she receives counsel. The first part of the counsel that she is given is very simply this, forget the past. Verse 10 and 11a, listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, then the king will desire your beauty. So forgetting her people and her father's house doesn't mean abandoning them or pretending like they no longer exist. What it is doing is it is speaking of the significance of this marriage union, the creation of a new priority in the life of the bride and of the groom, one that requires a place of utmost prominence. Now, in speaking of the marriage relationship and of the importance of that union in an earthly sense, we would read these words, which are recited at virtually every Christian wedding that I have ever attended. It is these words from Genesis 2. The Lord God fashioned into a woman a rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, when two people get married, there is this incredibly important leaving and cleaving that takes place that signifies the prominence of this union and the life of these two individuals. In order for a physical marriage to function properly, there must be a committed joining together by leaving one's family in order to cleave to your spouse in order to establish most fully this union. So in forgetting the past, forgetting your people, forgetting your ancestral connection, if you will, is only describing the prominence of this new union. It is in the joining together that the bride, that the, excuse me, the king will desire the beauty of his bride. These words may seem harsh at first, but they are very reminiscent of the Abrahamic call when Abraham was in the land of Ur, minding his own business, doing his own thing, and God spoke to him and said in Genesis 12:1, the Lord God said to Ammon, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. You see, in order for Abraham to cleave to the Lord, he was going to have to leave his land and his father and all that was dear to him. It's the same kind of thing that takes place in a physical marriage ceremony, and this is exactly what is being told to you and I as the church. We are called to leave behind the old ways when we come to faith in Christ. We are to leave and we are to cleave 
to him. Luke 9, 23, very familiar verse of Scripture. Jesus said to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And to signify the prominent importance that this cleaving to Jesus is to bring into the life of one who would call Him Lord and Savior. He would say in Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Now, Jesus is not teaching hatred of mother and father and of our immediate family. What He is teaching is very simply this. In contrast to your love for Me, your love for all others is to be like hatred. There is this incredibly prominent union that takes place in our lives when we come to Christ for salvation. This is what the psalmist is talking about as he metaphorically speaks of the great marriage supper that will one day take place between Christ and the bride, His church. So this leaving and this cleaving is a struggle that many Christians have in their lives. Leaving the old people and the old ways is incredibly difficult to do, is it not? Because these are all the friends I've ever known. This is all the certainty that I have in my life. It's the only sense of belonging or connection that I have in my life. And in the moment, the loss may seem too great and the uncertainty of the future may actually be paralyzing to the one who understands that he has to leave the old ways behind and he has to now cleave to Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. Author William Chantry makes application of this and says these words, It is painful to leave behind mother and father, son and daughter. We are attached to the beauties and friendships of this world, Forget them all. The King will more than make up for all. Someday you will look back upon the parting with temporal things and think your hesitation silly and ill-founded. When you sit in the ivory palace, arrayed in a gold of a fur, at the right hand of the eternal King, you will wonder what you saw in those former things. You will never regret it. Carry through with your discerning choice. The King must be your one and only love henceforth. This is what takes us a lifetime to learn is that anything we forsake in this world pales in comparison to what we receive because we are at the right hand of the King. We'll learn more about this in just a moment. Number two, as he gives instruction or counsel to the bride, is very simply this, honor your Lord, 11b. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The word bow down here literally means to honor him. So to honor Him means to bow down before Him. Now this is a far cry from the popular love stories that so frequently fill our heads today. Love is a feeling. Love is a notion. Love is an emotion. Love is the sweaty palms and the queasy stomach. Love is the inability to think about anything other than this other person in my life. Well, as we remember that the psalmist is writing of both a literal 
and of a figurative wedding relationship. This is being described to us as a holy relationship in which the beautiful love of the bridegroom for the bride and the humble reverence of the bride for the groom are both beautifully maintained. I said these words at my son's wedding just a few weeks ago. The scriptural teaching that we have is that the, the bride is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, and the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And these acts of self-denial seem like an incredibly high sacrifice, but they're really not. They are an investment into the two becoming one and completing the leaving and the cleaving. Here's what the Word of God says to us in relation to not only the physical wedding, but also of the spiritual wedding between the bride and the church, or the bridegroom Jesus over the church. Ephesians 5, 22-26. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So this mutual fulfilling of leaving and cleaving is seen in submitting in reverence and loving sacrificially. Just as Christ has done for us, we are to do for our spouses. Just as we are to submit before the Lord, so our spouses are also to offer their submission. Again, Chantry writes this based upon this passage. He says, If a marriage union is to endure, the husband must express his love to his wife by tenderly cherishing her as a part of his own body, by considerateness, by sharing all the goodness of God in his life with her. She in turn must express love by holding her husband in high esteem and by submitting to him in all things. Thus the church must bow down to Christ, both because he is her Lord and sovereign and because he is her Lord and husband. Since the bride loves her Lord, it is a pleasant thing to serve his interest. She desires to bring Christ honor, to fulfill his will, and to worship his name. Now we could talk a lot more about this, but we're really in Psalm 45 and making application about what the psalmist is alluding to in the marriage that is to take place between Jesus the bridegroom and us the church as his bride. So the third piece of counsel the psalmist gives is to look ahead. Verse 12, The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. So the last word of advice that the psalmist has for the bride is to not look at the past and what you feel like you're sacrificing or what you're giving up, but to look to the future, to look at what the future holds for you as the bride of the king, knowing that her choice of him was the right choice to have been made. Think about that. Whatever it is that we feel like we're giving up 
in order to serve the king, we are to remember all that we gain because we now sit at the right hand of the king who is our bride. Now, in ancient cultures, it was common for surrounding countries who feared the king or for surrounding allies who wanted the good graces of the king to bring gifts to the king and his new bride. So the sense of loss that the bride might feel as she leaves her former home will be, will be replaced by the joy of her union with the new groom. In a similar way, when we leave behind our connection to the world and give ourselves to Christ, our groom, the joy of this union, will far outweigh, outweigh the sense of loss from leaving the old ways and of leaving the old allegiances. Consider this, and this is an incredibly small sampling of the joy that is ours because we have left behind the old and because we have joined ourselves to Christ. Here's what is written for us in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been chosen by Him for salvation. We have been redeemed, bought back to Him by the blood of Christ. Therefore, all of our sins have been forgiven. We have been the recipients of the lavish grace of God. So the question is this, is all of that better than what the world has to offer us? Is all of that better, is all of that, excuse me, worth leaving the world in order to gain through our union with Christ? You see, we often look back at the things that we've had to lay down because of our our allegiance to Christ, and we've regretted it. Sometimes we've even resented it. Sometimes we are even drawn back to it. But we must always remember, we must always look ahead to what Christ has given to us and what we will continually learn to enjoy based upon our union with Him. And if not in this world, then most certainly in the, eternal, in the eternality of the hereafter. One day you are going to breathe your last and you will be ushered into eternity and you will either see Him as He really is and enjoy Him with all the saints forever and forever or you will not. Anything that we have left behind in this world that we have felt a sense of loss over is going to be incredibly replaced with a joy that is unspeakable, with a glory that is unimaginable, for a span of time that never ever ends. So the counsel here for us is to look ahead. 
Look at what God has done for us. Look at what we continue to learn to enjoy in our union with Him. And look always at the eternity that awaits us, quite possibly much more quickly than we think. So we should never look back, always looking forward, seeking to honor Him, bring glory to Him, and to please Him with the lives that we live. Now the psalmist returns to his description of the wedding procession. The bride is proceeding now to the groom. Verse 13. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. So the king's daughter is a way of describing the bride. She's not literally his daughter, even though that that's not truly who she is. She is clothed in glory. This is both a description of the external garments that she is wearing, which are woven with gold. It also speaks of her external beauty as she is being led to her groom. This description is both literal and metaphorical since it is describing a real person and it is also metaphorically speaking about the spiritual bride of Christ, the church, which is clothed in His glory. This white garment which is woven with gold, which is described as beautiful, is the description of the bride of Christ, which is clothed in the very glory that belongs to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are clothed in His righteousness. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In our new regenerated spirit, we have been made like Christ. And as a new creation, we are made holy and we are made acceptable to God. And when God the Father looks upon us, He doesn't see the journey in progress. He doesn't see the sin which we are so easily entangled by. He sees the glory and the righteousness of Christ because that is what we have been clothed in. When we are presented to Christ, our groom, we will be clothed in His righteousness described as this garment woven with gold. So the psalmist describes this procession to the king in verse 14. She will be led to the king in embroidered work The virgins or companions who follow her will be brought to you. So the wedding party, these young women who are described as virgins, verse 15, they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. And so they enter into the palace of the king with great joy, the place of the beginning of this wedding feast. And so we know there's always a great sense of joy and excitement and expectancy at the beginning of a wedding ceremony. And as much as that is true in our earthly weddings, it is even more so in our eventual eternal wedding to Christ our Groom. That ceremony that will bring about the wedding supper of the Lamb will be rejoiced over by all of the entities who are in heaven even now. The angelic beings that the Father has created, all the saints of old who are already there, when we, the bride, are caught up with Him and joined to Him, 
all of the heavenlies are going to rejoice at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, the last part of this, number four in our outline, is the conclusion. The psalmist turns his attention back to the king and he utters what is seemingly a very generalized blessing, but it actually has incredibly significant meaning to it. This is a general word of blessing to the king and it speaks of the offspring that will come from the union of the king and of this bride. Verse 16, In place of your fathers will be your sons, You shall make them princes in all the earth. So the sons of the king would be princes in the world. They would become the byproduct of this union. These princes would be given great privilege and great protection. And if we make application to us as the bride of Christ, understanding that this is a messianic psalm, and it speaks of us as the future bride of Christ, we would think of it in terms like this. These sons who will, be, who will be princes speak of the spiritual offspring of Christ and they will be numerous into the remotest parts of the earth and we will be the byproduct of this spiritual union between Christ and His bride. Princes of the King of glory and all the earth speak of the multitudes of his spiritual offspring in every corner of the world. Revelations 5.9 And they sang a new, th- new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Think about that. A king who would bear many sons would create princes who would have some kind of a footprint in the world that they lived in. But Jesus, who is the firstborn of many, is going to give birth spiritually to princes who will inhabit every corner of the world. Look how the psalmist concludes this royal wedding blessing. He speaks of a lasting glory. The king's lasting glory. Verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. He wasn't a part of the king's family, but because of his love for, because of his admiration of, and because of his loyalty to the king, he says, I, the psalmist, the one who has been so blessed to write these words, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations and all the peoples will give thanks to you forever and forever. Think about this. This leads us to wonder, not only did the psalmist truly understand what he was writing, I I don't think that he did, I think it was a general blessing speaking of the king's fruitfulness, a way of saying saying your kingdom is going to be great. But as we understand this being a messianic psalm, and the psalmist writing of the bride of Christ, he, the inspired psalmist, will continue to make the name of Christ great through all the people's And all peoples will give thanks to Him forever 
and forever. Are you and I, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, are you and I, as the bride of Christ, doing what the psalmist said he would do, making his name great amongst all the peoples? Do we praise him who has purchased us to himself to be his bride? What are you and I doing that is causing his name to be remembered? Even more so, are we joyously and anxiously waiting for his coming, adorning ourselves with his righteousness and preparation for the coming of the bridegroom when we will be joined to him for all eternity? Jesus will return, and when he does return, we will be joined to him in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We read this in 1 Thessalonians 1. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Are we waiting? Are we expectantly, anxiously, joyously waiting? John 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Are you ready for His coming? Are you looking forward to His coming? Are we committed to making His name great amongst all the peoples forever and forever? Would you pray with me please? Well, Father, we acknowledge that the King is indeed splendid. We also acknowledge, Father, that You have made us the bride to be something that we are not yet. We will one day be perfected. We will one day fully experience the righteousness that You have given to us. We will one day see the complete consummation of our salvation realized as we enter into your presence forever and forever. But until that time comes, Father, we are to forget the past, those old affiliations, those old connections, the old ways of doing things. And we are to look ahead at the joy that is ours as, as being your bride. God, I pray that we would be readying ourselves for your coming. You will come much sooner than we expect. And I pray, Father, that it is our desire to be as spiritually prepared for that coming as we can be, joyously, expectantly, longing for your coming. Father, how we thank you for the way your mercy and your grace covers our inability to be who we desire to be. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that covers the sin that we so easily and quickly commit that is a part of our past. And God, I just pray that you would continually grow within our hearts a desire to be wholly other in our walk with you. 
Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, through our praise, as only you can. We pray that in the still, small voice of your spirit, that you would be calling us to yourself for your glory and for your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.